Foster Care Nation. Listen up. This is Foster Care and on Paralyzed Terminator. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. Welcome back to part two of Coping with Rad in Foster Care with Cheryl Rougeau. In today's episode, we dig a little bit into the diagnoses that her children had and the problems that it caused in her family and how they dealt with it. In the end, we find out about how Cheryl and her husband, Joe, hope to find peace for their future. spectrum disorder, the fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, which whatever you, you know, whatever term you want to use. Um, she certainly has complex PTSD. And as her therapist has said, um, she wants to do um, EMDR with her. She couldn't do it or start it until the, the relinquishment was complete, knowing the only way she could do it was knowing that we were going to be able to get through it without having um, any contact between the siblings in the end because in order to do successful EMDR on a patient with complex trauma you have to be able to work it as a stacked effort first which means working on the most current trauma first and she has to be able to have a felt sense of safety or at least have a true sense of safety first and then be able to formulate a felt sense of safety and if she's still constantly being re-traumatized by someone who has perpetrated violence on her then she won't be able to to utilize that as a tool um so that was really as crushing and heartbreaking as it was just recently to have our final court hearing and it was actually much more painful than we anticipated after going through everything we did, it was truly, it was truly painful to have to, 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 to relinquish. I, it was a relief to know that the rest of the family is going to be safe. The pain that we feel grieving a child that is still out there. And we know it's really hard to trust that somebody's going to be advocating for what's best for her and for the community and for people that she encounters next um, for the safety for all of them is really hard to think that there's somebody that's going to advocate what her needs are. Um, so um, that, that's really challenging, but our grandchildren really suffered and that that was painful. That that was one of the harder, harder pieces to, to take and even now um, we have six amazingly beautiful grandchildren that were the they, that we didn't have six then. We ended up with we had less then. We start to have more now. But um, our especially our oldest grandson for a long time was the center of our universe. He uh, his parents were young when they had him, and when they found out they were pregnant for him, our biggest concern was that they not do what a lot of people do, which is jump ahead. Um, dad was still in college. My daughter was still home. We asked that, that they continue with that. We wanted her to stay home so they could have a chance and a, at success. And so he was born. They lived here for the first year of his life. And we supported that. So he, um, this was his home, his first home. And then they moved on and they bought their first home and they live eight minutes down the road with their four children. Now it was very quickly. It became unsafe and she was pregnant with her third, our first granddaughter. Um, when we knew it was so unsafe that they was, they weren't going to be able to come over anymore. So that was pretty crushing and difficult on all of them. And our grandson, our oldest grandson still has a hard time with that. You guys got to the point where, and for anybody who doesn't know what, what it means, you know, if, if you're not in the foster or adoptive world, 
Um, you guys got to the point where, where you just eventually had to say, we cannot keep our family or this girl safe and we have to find a, a new place for her to live because it's, it's just detrimental to everyone, her included. Yeah. Yeah. I apologize. I talk like, um, everybody sort of knows what I'm talking about. It's kind of become our world. Uh, what ended up happening with us was that we tried everything, literally, um, we started out with actually I have 10 pages of services that we tried both um, based on the insurance that comes with the children, you know, the state insurance that comes with the children through foster and, and adoption, as well as our paying out of our own pockets and um, all kinds of private service, private therapies, private Kung Fu services that are were trauma informed um i i can't even think off the top of my head because there's so many things that we did that i don't even realize that are like a therapeutic we did therapeutic tool but we had her in um a uh actually a children's trauma informed treatment class while we did a parent's trauma informed class although we were already therapeutically trained parents we kind of did this as a co-existing thing. We did show many things that were specific to her. At the same time, unfortunately, our other children, like like Layla and Bennett, were getting kind of shoved in the corner, and we were even having to cancel services for them because so much was taken up on trying to do the things that we needed to to keep up with her her services um when she went to the residential treatment center that was september of 2018 we quickly started to realize that something didn't seem quite right especially as we were talking about um you know reactive attachment disorder things didn't seem to fit and as time went on we definitely could see that we didn't seem like we were on the same page within two weeks we hadn't had a meeting even and we hadn't had a visit. The, the social worker kept saying, well, you can't have a visit until we have a meeting. And I work part time. So, you know, we were going back and forth about that. The psychiatrist actually is a psychiatrist that we had been working with at the psychiatric hospital for a couple of years now. And so we had a decent working relationship. And then our daughter ended up breaking her arm within the first two and a half, three weeks there. I said, well, I'm going to the ER. I don't know about you, but I'm not waiting for some meeting to have a visit to go to the ER. So I did what I went to the ER because they were giving her a medication to reset her arm that I knew caused dissociation. And I found that could be extremely problematic for a child who had a history of dissociation in the past. She hadn't in a while, but I definitely wanted to be there for that. So she had this cast reset, all that. Well, very Early on in her journey with her broken arm, she just realized it got her a lot of extra attention, especially if she used it as a weapon. And so if she saw somebody running, heading towards the door of the residential treatment center, she could stick her arm in the door and smash her arm in the door, attempting to re-break it. And that would get her lots of attention. So then they would call mom and say, mom, she needs to go to the ER. And then she would get all kinds of attention. And I said, no, this is stopping. I'm not running down every time she slams her arm in the door, go to the ER. So from now on, if she decides she's going to do something like that, and you really think she needs to go to the ER, somebody there needs to take her over because this is completely counterproductive. So my name is written in the chart, of course. Mom's negligent, doesn't want to participate in medical care. Sorry. But she continued to do that. And then it became a thing where during our visits, if we just she asked us to take her to Six Flags. Well, by now she was running away from the RTC when they told her no chocolate chip cookies. or So they just could continue to give her chocolate chip cookies so she wouldn't run away. So then... Um, they she would run away if they said no to something you know no video games or something and so she was still working on trying to re-break her arm for 
when she wanted something. So she said to my husband and I one day during a, a lunch visit that she, she wanted us to take her to Six Flags. Well, I'm thinking I'm not taking you anywhere off campus if you can't even stay on campus when you're supposed to. Well, I said, well, yeah, I don't think that's going to happen right now. And then she tried to say her social worker told us we had to. So, okay. Well, you know what? That's good. Your social worker can take you, which I knew her social worker may have mentioned it as a thing, but not that she told us we had to because we had a little difficulty with communication with the social worker. And she said, well, if you don't take me, I'm just going to break my arm. And I said, well, then if you break your arm, you're really not going to Six Flags because they don't let people with broken arms on rides. I went back to the residential treatment center to drop her off and I told them about her. I said, so can you just make sure that she doesn't go on the monkey bars or any of that? Because that's how she broke her arm the first time. And yeah, so they documented that. And um, I told a couple of people about it. I told her social worker directly about it. And then this kept happening. Every time she wanted something, she was asked, telling me she was going to break her arm, telling Joe she was going to break her arm. Finally, we talked to a couple of the direct care staff and they said, we never heard that she was threatening to break her arm again on visits with you. And I said, I don't know what to tell you, you, you know, that's communication issues. But you might want to know because you're the ones that are out taking care of her every day on the playground and such. And um, within a few weeks, number of weeks, she broke her arm again. And then I got a call from a nurse on staff that said, you know, I don't want to upset you, but I think it would be a good idea if you didn't come down for this one, because I think she might've done this one on purpose. And so I asked her to tell me what happened. And I said, well, she's been telling me for probably a month or two that she's been going to do it. And I said, how'd she do it? She was on the monkey bars. And they said, Wow. So I told her she wasn't, told everybody she wasn't supposed to be on the monkey bars. And her orthopedic surgeon said she wasn't supposed to be on the monkey bars. But go see what happens, get it taken care of. And I said, if you would mind, can you not, can you just let the, um, you know, the ED know when you take her over that it was suggested by you guys that I not come down? Because I'm not planning on coming down. I agree with you. I think it's a bad idea. But I also don't want people documenting all over the place that mom's just not showing up. Um, so when we got to see her the next visit, she proudly displayed her cast. And we just kind of, huh? And she goes, yeah, I want to break it next time. I'm going to make sure they give me a waterproof one so I can swim with it. And I said, you know what? Those aren't covered under insurance and we're not paying for one. And she just kind of gave me that like a sly look, like squint look. Um, and I did tell the staff that the next time I brought her back and I said, and she's telling me the next one is going to be waterproof and we won't pay for it. Just so you know. Um, it sounds like there's, you know, not only a lot of intentionality there. You know, mm -hmm. but, but there's a, a lot of that malice towards you guys. It has to be difficult to handle. But I mean, when, once the, the ER docs and nurses are saying, Hey, we think this might be intentional. We think this, and they're, they're telling you the things that you already know. I mean, that, that had to have at least felt good to realize that you're not entirely crazy. Right. The unfortunate, well, mm, the unfortunate piece of that is that when I had that one person tell me that. She never documented it. And when I went and said to people that she told me that, the social worker from the RTC went and questioned her. The social worker came back and said she never said it. Mm. Oh, man. I know that you had mentioned before that you had a, a lot of people that you had connections with that understood and and knew, like the nurse and, and the teachers and things like that. But I would imagine that you didn't have that connection with everybody. I mean, oh, were no. there people that treated you guys poorly? I mean, how, yeah. how did that work? Yeah. Yeah. So the school was really, uh, the school and our private therapists were really our only um, 
source of, if I'm talking therapeutic community type of supports, um, if I if I'm thinking correctly on that one, um, the school was absolutely a lifesaver for us. And I, I mean, there's really specific people in the elementary school. Uh, we had one specific elementary school that the girls went to. And then, of course, um, I really found the middle school to be very supportive for our son. Um, the principal at the middle school was so wonderful. We kept him up to date as things were happening with the girls. Um, if we, I would call him and just say, hey, can you keep an eye you know, on Ben? And this is, we're just really struggling with this. Um, he was phenomenal. He checked in with him. He, if, if literally, if we just, my son and I needed a mental health day together because it was the only alone time we could get, I'd call him up and he would be like, okay, you know what? You guys need it. So that was phenomenal. The girls school, they both went to the same elementary school to start with before our older daughter was put into a therapeutic school. Um, the relationships that I built, my husband and I built there, uh, are literally friendships we'll cherish for a life. Um, that's unusual with a child with reactive attachment disorder. They helped our younger daughter um, as well as her, her preschool. They really have helped her develop into who she is now. And even through COVID, while I was so sick, I have to give so much credit to them because knowing my husband is a essential government employee, knowing how sick I was, knowing everything that we were going through with court, they took on Layla's education and supported us remotely through everything so that Layla could get the therapeutic and educational support she needed. So I thank everyone for that part because her recovery that she's made in the last seven months goes out to so many different people. Um, that's the good stuff. The pieces that fell completely apart for us was when we really got involved with what I would consider community and state agencies. Um, the idea of wraparound services did not exist for us, even though that's what we were supposed to have. Nobody walked into our home, not even once, from a community agency, despite the fact that they were supposed to and they were ordered to. Um, I remember a conversation with a social worker, a DCF social worker, actually, just prior to the adoption. I'm going to step back a bit here um, because it really sums up how we were treated through the entire process from beginning to last week when we signed off for the last time. And our social worker in Vermont, where we are, um, said to us as we were, I was telling her how difficult things were going just prior to the adoption. And she said, you know, Cheryl, she goes, I don't know what to tell you, really. You're one of those families that we dream about. You're so high functioning and you're just such a dream family. And you're so confident that you're really making it work. And that's what we hope for. And she goes, you really are. You're just making it work. And that's good. She goes, you're really doing well. But she said, that's also a bad thing because it makes you not a priority. So she said, I don't know what to tell you. She goes, I know you like me. I know I like you. But she goes, I am part of that system that you, you complain about and that you talk about. That's not working. And she said, just get this adoption through. Get the system out of your picture so that you can parent these kids the way you want and then things will be okay. And I just said, you know what? That just answered all my questions. Yeah. Yeah, the state's never been known for being able to handle complicated, nuanced situations very well. 
No. And unfortunately, what that does, though, is it gives you false hope that by getting them out of your picture and parenting the kids the way you want is going to fix everything. And they, again, they over and over and over and over told us that having, you know, a forever home and giving the kids a forever home and the adoption being going through is all she needed. And it would really fix the setting my house on fire, the stabbing her sister, the drowning her sister, the throwing her sister in the fireplace, throwing her sister off a ledge out back, you know, I mean, all of those things, smothering her in her sleep. You know, Layla's now waking up with these nightmares that she's choking and she's smothering and unfortunately, perhaps other behaviors that are coming out that she's not acting them out, but she's talking and dreaming about things that may have happened. And I know her therapist is concerned about sexualized behaviors. Those are all things we're going to have to work through. Maybe you have some, some hope left with, with Layla to be able to, to bring, bring it around full circle. And I know that, that some of the most powerful moments Amanda and I have had, the, the difficult ones are the moments where, where we had an opportunity to say yes to a situation that looked really challenging, but didn't feel right. And, Fortunately for us, in those the two situations I'm thinking of specifically, when we said no, as challenging as it was to say no, both of those situations um, were with two sets of, of, of uh, two siblings, and both of them ended up in a wonderful place where they should be because we realized that it wasn't the right place. Our home was, was a great place for a lot of kids, but it wasn't the right place for some kids. And it was when we got to that point that we decided that, that, hey, this is hard to say no, but we have to say this because it's better for us. But most importantly, it's better for the kids. Yeah. And there's not many people who, who want to hear that in the moment. Yeah. No, it's not easy. And you get, you know, there's so ju- so much judgment that's put out there for that kind of decision. and I And I expect that. And that's, you know, when we put our article out, it was hard put that out. It was vulnerable and it was something that it was time. I can only imagine how this has affected your family. How has it affected you and your husband's relationship? Oh, that is a great question. And it's really important. Um, We, this journey has, this type of journey has torn so many people apart and so many marriages apart. And I can honestly say one of the things that's so important for us and what I had already had a therapist prior to the the children coming here, thank goodness. During this journey, my husband obtained his own private therapist and we also gained a couples therapist as well. And that is vital or any relationship, I think, to survive. If you that if you want an opinion from a rad couple, um, that would be Joe's and my suggestion. For one thing, you get no time alone. And that was literally our 45 minutes to one hour a week that we had in the same room together alone that we had to commit. And we made it to the point where if a school called with an emergency, they were going to have to wait an hour. And that was that. If they had to have a kid in the in a room with three people holding her in there for an hour, they were going to have to wait for an hour. We needed that one hour um, to reconnect. In fact, we have continued to maintain those appointments through my illness and everything by phone because it's just that something that has become so important for us throughout our journey. There's been, we've each been in different places at different times and that can be really challenging. Thankfully, because the way that our daughter behaved, there was never a, a period of, well, he doesn't believe me and he, and he can't see it. So that can always be challenging. Um, a lot of times because the behavior is directed towards one person or the other, um, there can be a, you know, one parent doesn't necessarily believe what's happening over another parent. He didn't ever doubt 
necessarily what was happening because we knew this what was happening with the school. Um, but at the same time, when it came to the end, for me, my grief was overwhelming when I had to drop her off at the RTC. Going through the RTC period, I was actually treated more horribly by the team at the RTC or by the therapist at the RTC and the team and the mental health team there than I think I was by my rad. Um, and he was treated much more gently, kind of like the, oh, he's the unknowing dad. We'll just kind of coddle him. He's the, he's sort of the, you know, the numb dad that's just sitting here beside the wife and she's the loud mouth who's sitting here acting like she knows already what's wrong with the kid. He's very supportive, very smart, but I was the one that's like, you have no idea what's going on. How can you tell me it's all about her? I've got other kids at home. You know, I'm all emotional and passionate. Like I have more people at home. It's not going to be about one kid. And they didn't want to hear that anyone else was important. So I think that's where we started struggling was that in those moments where I'm in a meeting and I'm being berated by somebody and he's sort of, he was being supportive in his way of being supportive, but I was so emotional and frustrated with being looked at. Like I didn't know what I was talking about. And I'm like, we came out of one meeting. I remember one meeting and I was like, you did nothing. You did nothing. You sat there and said we weren't the experts. And he's like, well, I didn't think we were. And I'm like, I know a heck of a lot more than she did. <laughs> and, it, and actually, even our therapists were like, well, she's kind of right on that one. You know, but so I think it's it's really important to kind of have that constant communication because he can't read my mind. I can't read his mind. And I'm upset with him over something he has no idea about. And those little things, because all of that tension of what this is going on in the house is enough to explode. And I felt completely invalidated. And yet he just was like, I didn't think we were the experts. They are, aren't they? I'm like, you think that's an expert? Someone that's being asked what type of attachment model you use. And they say, well, we expect the parents to do more visitation. He's like, uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what I'm supposed to say. Just tell me next time. You know, but he, you know, he's working and working and working to try to just put out the fires literally and figuratively. Yeah. And still attend these meetings and take care of his wife and his kids and, you know, and pay the bills and all of these things. And it's not, I'm not pushing anything off that it's not his responsibility, but at the same time, he's taken over two salaries and, also coming home every time I call him because I need an extra hand set of hands to restrain a kid. <laughs> so it's really important to keep that. But then, so when my grief hit after dropping her off, I, I that's when I, cr I crashed. It was the three, like you're talking about the sleep, the three and a half year, years of no sleep for me. Cause I'm the one that can't sleep. I literally, my body, <laughs> excuse me, crashed everything. I got physically sick. It was, a whole process of all those years of just going, 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 and being on hyper alert. My like cortisol, everything was totally out of balance. That's a whole lot for any one human to deal with for sure. Where are you guys looking to find hope in the future? Well, that's another good question, Jason. Now that we've got the COVID <laughs> to go with. Um, so, yeah, I guess we had um, we had all those great plans, and then um, I ended up with COVID in March. So I'm now eight months post COVID because I was infected, likely in February. So our, you know, you make plans and then you kind of laugh because in our world nothing goes according to plan in this foster adoptive world that we have, and you just kind of learn to go with the flow. Um, you know, I really struggle a lot with. Um, the last eight months have given me a huge amount of reflection time. And I, I think more anger and frustration. I'm human. I think more anger and frustration and all of that have come out now. 
um, kind of over that lo- the loss of some of the years and the loss of some of the time and that. But at the same time, it's also given me a huge amount of time to figure out how to slow down because I haven't had much time to do anything else. So now what Joe and I are doing is reevaluating kind of everything and figuring out how to do things simply and enjoy life as a couple simply. Because that's something that, you know, we always reached out for what's the, what, what can we do? What's great? You know, we, we did get to travel to Europe finally once last year. Um, yeah, that was supposed to be his 50th birthday present years ago. And that kind of got passed by. Uh, so we did get to travel to Europe. That was, that was great. But, you know, we were supposed to go to Bora Bora this year for our big, big, big anniversary. And that, that got put off. So that might have to wait a while, but now we're looking forward to healing and we're looking forward to having our grandkids over again and um, finding ways to garden again. Just the simple, quiet stuff, grieving together. Um, Now I get emotional. Um, Grieving, grieving what never was, I think is the best way to put it because you grieve the loss of a childhood that never really was able to exist. Yeah. Unfortunately, I understand what you're saying there very well. Yeah, because it's not it's not who's who was, it's just who who never could be because of what was stolen from her. And I think it's hard for people to understand that despite all of the things, you know, that happened um she was a victim too. And I, that's what I grieve. And I grieve for the fact that she's not being helped to not become a perpetrator. Rad, as far as I understand it, is not a genetic disease. You don't get that from, from, uh, from biology. It's, it's only because of what happened in her past that was outside of her control that has made her into the little human that she is today. And as a society, we're going to deal with the aftermath of that and whether or not it's a success or a failure in how the state decides to treat that. Absolutely. I, I mean, I certainly think there are certain people that are more, that are predisposed to trauma in different ways. I, but I do think that rad is absolutely something that can be dealt with differently. I think there's a possibility to have children appropriately screened when they come into care you know, that that's going to have to look like something different by somebody who's trained, not just um, not, you know, not just a social worker that's taking them in, but somebody who's truly trained. And if we screen children early, if we're t- if we have children that we're taking in early, imagine screening. You, you can't diagnose a child with RAD necessarily at three, four five months, but you can do really good early screening. I know we saw we saw Layla at five months old the first time she was taken and she was so severely neglected. There are so many interventions that could have been put in place with her the first time she was taken that I think could have significantly reduced the effects of what are happening with her now. And she's not easy. You know, they, they, they wrote in the case plan and um, had us have to say in court, you know, we chose the child that was easier for us. Um, and that wasn't the case in the least bit. And that was, you know, something that was a little challenging to say because that certainly wasn't the, the case. We didn't choose anything. We chose to keep our family safe and chose to, to have a child that was unsafe to be in any home put in any home that's why we didn't choose to find a home placement for her ourselves that could have been safe where we could have had if it just was the fact that they simply needed to be separated it could have been put in two different homes we maybe we could have had someone else have her and still be involved as a family that wasn't the case but you know she's constantly 24 hours a day seven days a week but she is making significant progress so I think the early screening for something 
significant that would make a really, really, really great progress in placing children correctly, getting early intervention, and properly placing them in homes that are appropriate. Because if I have better skills and training in potentially medical needs for children, and you're better trained and skilled in psychiatric needs, then why not place these kids in homes that are perhaps better suited to meet their needs? Yeah, and I'm not familiar with all the details of it, but I know in the European system, um, being a foster carer is actually a job there. And I think that that's something like that. I mean, because to call the, the American system volunteers, I guess technically we're not a volunteer. We do receive a, a stipend. It's not a whole lot. I don't know what, what they pay up in, in your state, but the state of Missouri, we are either the lowest or the second lowest paid state in the nation. It's um, Yeah, we don't get rich off of foster care. That's such a fallacy. Yeah. Well, I mean, and and there are ways to do it in certain places if you're if you're inclined to to try and get rich by by warehousing children and then getting oh, yeah. rated difficult levels and all that. There's ways that that people can do it, and those are the stories that you hear. But but in all honesty, the the little bit of money that that the state does reimburse you for what you put out raising kids is not the sort of thing where a person can work a regular job, take care of their home and their family and their bills. And still go get the level of training that would help a lot of these kids who are going through significant mental struggles as a very young child. So I, I think if if the states would look at, at something like that, perhaps there would be a way to do it. But for today, you know, we're, we're stuck with what we have. And, and so I, I just want to commend you and your husband, Joe, for being willing to step into a situation like that that you already knew was challenging. I mean... Let's face it. We, you know, we we have a a uh, a young family member who who came to us via the foster system who who came from a family situation, and I know a lot of his background, and I know that there's some stuff there. When he hits fifteen, oh man, it's going to be a ride. I know this. He's currently my buddy, and we're good. Like we're we're good today. But you know, you give us eight years, we're going to have some struggles ahead of us. And we choose yeah. to do that because this is family, because we've, you know, my wife was in the hospital room when he was born. We're going to do everything that we can to raise him and give him all the pieces we can to, to move forward. And that's part of what we're doing. But man, it's, it's, it's tough to do when you know, especially in today's world with the, with the, the world wide web out there pushing all this information at us, you know, that there are things that if you had the time the energy, the money, and the ability to get that training, it would make it better. But it's it's such a challenge for all of us. And it sounds like, you know, you and your husband were really well prepared for most most situations. This just sounds like an incredibly extreme situation that I don't know if anybody could truly be prepared for. It's hard to find the information, actually. I mean, I looked and looked and looked because I just knew something was wrong. And I'm like, there, I can't even begin. And it wasn't until we had a really bad meeting. I mean, I was done, like not done, not like, but I was done with them. I was done with this team that I was in the RTC and I will never free. I actually have these meetings recorded actually, because I was just getting to the point where I couldn't, I needed to play them back. So I couldn't figure out if I was just being overly emotional and crazy or if I was actually hearing what I was hearing from these people, because I, after living with Rad for so long, you start to wonder if you're being gaslit by everybody, you know, or if you're just losing your mind everywhere, you know, <laughs> like, all right, is the gas person really even trying to overcharge me or am I just like losing my mind everywhere? Um, so it's one of those things where I started recording because I'm like, am I hearing this? Are they really thinking of formulating a discharge plan? Because we can't even take her off campus yet. And she attacked her sister at Christmas on a Christmas visit doing nothing. And then my son is getting blamed for intervening. You know, this is nuts. That was May. I couldn't, I couldn't handle my husband was literally in the emergency room having chest pain but we were afraid to cancel the meeting because we were already kind of accused of not being involved enough. So I, he's in the, he's having cardiac issues in the ER and I'm going to this meeting anyways yeah. to try to prove them to them that we were involved. And they started in on the discharge planning and mom needs to be more involved and all that. And 
and I had the Department of Mental Health on the phone as well. And I finally said, I said, there will be no planning happening until everyone in my family is ready. And everyone in my family has healed enough to be able to handle this. And I was a little more heated than I am right now. And she wasn't present for any of these meetings. But I was so tired of everyone telling me when my family was ready, not just when she was ready. And I knew she wasn't ready. Anyways, you know, for me, it needs to be a family process. And if nobody can understand how traumatized everybody else is at home as well, that at the mention, very mention of her name, they're all running in horror, including my dog, then I need to figure something else out. So it really was not until six, maybe six, seven months in that I was, I remember sitting on my couch, I was alone, sobbing, and I couldn't figure out how I was going to continue this existence, even with her in the RTC. I mean, I thought that was supposed to be a relief, but the phone calls kept coming, coming, coming. They were utilizing us to de-escalate her over the phone, not to mention the phone calls for every time she ran or got restrained or got had to go to the ER or any of that. And I just started Googling again. I'm like, I don't know why. There's never anything. I can't find anything about RAD. This is this does not make sense. And I even the stuff I was finding on RAD didn't, I mean, it fit her, but I couldn't find exactly her because she was so extreme. She was like the kids I see in these movies that you have to like get on horror movies. And then that's when I, all of a sudden, the first thing that popped up this particular day was the website for our advocates, Rad Advocates. And I was like, I haven't seen this yet. So, um, like, why not? What can happen? They can tell me no. They can tell me I'm crazy, like everybody else. And I sent the email, and probably within 30, 45 minutes, I got the phone call back from our advocate, who also happened to be the president of the organization. She called me rather than scheduling an interview with me that day, just because our situation, she was like, I think we need to talk. <laughs> and she introduced herself. But then what she said to me, because of course I was really tenuous, like walking on glass as usual, trying to start to tell my story, but not sure who's safe to tell what to, because everybody else was like, already kind of starting to throw the little threats around about who I was, what I was. And she just said, she goes, I want to let you know, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a therapist and I'm not a threat. All I want to know, let you know is I'm another mom who knows where you've been. And I'm not going to tell you what you need to do for your child. This is what we do. And we're ready. I will meet you wherever you're at. What did that feel like to have somebody tell you that finally? Oh, my Lord. Out of any resource we had ever, I burst into tears. And I still wasn't sure if I could believe her or trust her. So I was still very careful. But we talked for a long time that day. And I don't know if I cried so hard out of relief and hope. Not even hope for an outcome of anything in particular, but hope for something that just somebody actually got it because we started talking and I didn't even finish my sentences and she knew what I was going to say in detail. And then she started saying stuff to me about Rad and I was like, you know my life you're living my like you you're you're in my house what i'm talking about cameras and locks and doors and not being able to leave and not having gone out to dinner with my husband for three years and all of those things you know my story and you know what joe and i've been living and it was so amazing they finally have someone who but again it wasn't it wasn't someone who had an MD or, you know, a PhD or any of that. It was just, it was another person, but who was willing to stand up with us and go through it. One of the things that that I do believe is that in every dark room, there is a little bitty spot of light, regardless of the room. Mm -hmm. What have you guys, I, I know you've walked through the darkness. You've walked deep waters. 
what have you taken out of this that, that you can use to make your life and the lives of others better? Oh, huge. Um, one of the biggest things I think for me is empathy and lack of judgment for others. You know, as I sat in the courtroom listening to our daughter's attorney um, thoroughly degrade us, um, I sat there actually, it was somewhat hurtful, but because I had been through the last year of kind of listening to it by um, her therapist at the RTC, um, I was not, it, it wasn't as painful for me. I think that the, the court part of it was a bit more painful for, for Joe. That was kind of his grieving period where mine was kind of going into the RTC period. Um, I, I remember listening to her and how horrified she was that anybody would ever do this. Anybody could ever do this. Who would do this to a child? And I do remember thinking to myself that if I was sitting, if I was in her position six years ago, seven years ago, I might be saying the same things. Who would ever walk away? But honestly, now I know that there are so many things about people and so many situations that we have no idea what people are going through. And that includes biological parents. That includes um, grandparents who are taking on parent, uh, children. We, that includes foster parents, adoptive parents. That includes the children. That includes that parent that maybe the kid is rolling themselves down the grocery store aisle or you're carrying them out over your head. And I've gotten, I've had, I had a few of those, one on each shoulder getting beat over the head. So I think there's so much that we don't know. And even more now, the other piece is I have a really, really difficult time trying to tell a mom or a dad going through this, you just need to find time for self-care. Because the more I heard that, the more defeated I became. You know, I feel that real deeply in my own soul. You know, as most of the listeners know, we, we've, we lost a daughter a few years ago. And what most people don't know is that as we walk through that journey, as she spent nine months fighting a nasty disease and I was getting up going to work every day and I still work with people that I worked with through that time frame, who a lot of them don't even know that happened. They don't know I went through that. And I did not have that, that group of people around me, that tribe of, of mentors and, and brothers to stand beside me. And I walked through that alone myself and, and learning that, that when you see that mom in the grocery store with a kid acting a fool, to not be the guy that I used to be when I was a young guy, to not point a finger and tell your yeah. kids, don't ever be like that or I will bust your butt, boy, you know, that kind of stuff, because it's so easy to do. Yeah. You know, it's not easy. It's just to walk over and ask her if she needs some help. Absolutely. I was not that man 10, 15 years ago. Today, no. today I am. And that's part of that piece of, of finding light in every dark room. As as much as I know the darkness that we've walked through, I now know that I don't know the darkness that that woman is walking through. Absolutely. I am not, and in, in COVID is another thing. I Eight months of this, I am not, remotely the same person I was eight months ago and it's every journey brings us to a different place and it's you know I really struggle with even the sayings of um you know all the people that just put on a positive face and all that I truly believe that toxic positivity can do as much damage as toxic negativity I think there's that that healthy place in the middle because if you have someone who's grieving the loss of someone so dear to them and I have someone I love very much who just lost their spouse a few years ago and I've been with her um through the loss of that and of course losing you know Baxter our, was my companion for 10 years our dog side by side never left my side went to work with me 10 years and 
you know, um, and, and then you, lo- you lost your daughter, who I know you've talked about, and the, the love that you have for her. You can't tell someone to smile their way out of it, and if there's a rainbow that's going to rise tomorrow, and the sun will come up tomorrow. That doesn't take that pain away. It will never take the pain of feeling what we felt as we signed our rights for our child away. We know we can't help. The sun will come out tomorrow, but that's not going to make that pain go away. It's learning how to live with the pain and the joy at the same time and let them coexist in your life as you heal. And that is where you'll find healing, not trying to push that pain away and not push the joy away, but allow them to coexist and know that it's okay to be in pain and it's okay to have joy at the same time. And that's what we tell Layla, is it's okay to be sad and it's okay to be happy and it's okay that sometimes you're going to have memories that make you feel both. That's our hope for you guys, truly, is that you find a way to, to do exactly that. You guys are amazing inspirations, especially with some of the stories you've told me, Jason, and I know Amanda, he's talked about the inspiration that you are as well. And I wish you guys all best as well in your journey forward and you're doing amazing work well thank you so much for sharing your story with us um you know this is a story that that we really hadn't touched upon and i think it's really important for a lot of people to hear that they're not alone you know and that's the thing is we are not. not alone reach out get some help and when someone's not listening find somebody else you know and that sounds exactly what you did as you kept going until you found the help that you and your family needed I really want to thank Cheryl for coming in and sharing her story with so much openness and honesty and vulnerability in here with us and all of you guys out there if you know anybody who's dealt with Brad hopefully this will help inspire you to be able to reach out and help them in ways that you didn't know you could before if you'd like to connect with our community, go over to Facebook and find our Facebook group called Foster Care and Unparalleled Journey. We have a page and we also have a group and you can become part of that community. All the links will be in the show notes. Don't forget, if you have a story, we're always looking for stories to share and you can reach us at fosterCareNation.com or fostercareuj at gmail.com. Also, we have a Patreon account feel free to hit us up at patreon.com slash foster care nation. And as always, thanks for listening.